And I didn't wanna feel this way Try to be an out of place Give me a one-way ticket out of here someplace I know I can't be happy It's not in my head All right, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm Joanne, and that's what she said. <laughs> um, thanks for coming on the podcast, Ben. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. Not really that I need to introduce myself to you, but uh, maybe this. Uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess I have new I have different listeners uh, to this podcast than the other one. We were saying I was saying off screen to you that I was raised Catholic and became a Nazarene, and you were raised Nazarene and became a Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> um, hence the title of your yeah. Hence the title of your new podcast, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, so I have met a lot of people who have become Catholics as um, adults who have converted to Catholicism. But most of those people that I've met have been people who grew up with no faith whatsoever. And they kind of just started looking at all different all different religions and then decided on Christianity. And then and, and then as they were looking through denominations, decided on Catholicism. So this is unique for me. I've, I don't think I've ever known anyone who's been Protestant who then, especially uh, in particular Nazarene, which would be more evangelical, um, mm -hmm. who transitioned to Catholicism. So can you talk about like what were the things, what was God doing in you? What were the things that was like kind of precipitated this? How did this all come about? Come about? Yeah, so uh, it was a fairly lengthy process. It took several years um, and actually, the way it started, uh, Catholicism wasn't even really on my radar at all. Um, but the turning point really started while I was uh, the pastor of of a church, local church. And about two or three years into my time doing that, I just started uh, trying to understand more of what is the role of the church um, just in general. Like, what does scripture teach about the role of the church? How can I better understand what my role is? as I'm leading people and ministering to them. Um, and in particular, what is the nature of the worship service? I, um, I think that question sort of came about because, uh, as I'm sure you know, a lot of, uh, especially evangelical churches, a lot of the resources like time and even finances and just mostly, you know, how you coordinate people, it tends to revolve around like the Sunday service, the Sunday church service. And uh, it seems like the uh, the church where I was a pastor had about 45 members. Uh, so I was the only pastor. And so that's, that's where a lot of my attention went was to make sure, you know, the Sunday morning service went well. And so I just started wondering, you know, what is the, the nature of all of this? Like the Sunday morning service? Um, like what is the, uh, yeah, just, you know, better understanding that. Because I, I just felt very much like if this is where all of our resources are going, um, how can I best capitalize on what's supposed to be taking place here and what God wants to do? And uh, pretty quickly, I uh, came to be a bit frustrated because I couldn't really find an answer to that, <laughs> um, at least within my own tradition. And it's not that there are no answers within the Church of the Nazarene. That's not what I'm saying. It's just for some reason, the answers just didn't seem uh, like they were adding up for me. Um, and I, I hadn't really progressed that far down that road. 
before I encountered um, like uh, more liturgical style traditions. So uh, like Catholicism, uh, but also Orthodoxy, that was one that first popped up on my radar. Um, just sort of looking into, well, what does the Orthodox service look like? But also even like Lutheran and Anglican, which are Protestant, but they have more of a high church flow where uh, their worship services are not necessarily more structured because my services were still structured. Like there was a, there was a very predictable uh, form, you know, every week, but it was just what took place in the services and what was the role of everything. There was something about the way those traditions did it. That was just very attractive to me. And I didn't really know why, but I could just tell that there was something going on there that was a bit beyond what I was doing or what I was, would be able to do. And so the sort of precipitated a lot of other questions that came. I know for a lot of people, they might hear me say that and say, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Like who really cares about, you know, the worship service, you just show up, you sing some songs, you have reading of the word, you have some exposition, uh, you might have uh, some sacraments happening there. Uh, why would that cause someone to leave a denomination? And that's why I say that was really the beginning point, because then, then that led into other questions of, you know, what's actually going on in these uh, more liturgical traditions, because liturgy for a long time for me was something I was drawn to, but I never really looked that much into it because uh, liturgy is not how do I want to say this because uh, every tradition has liturgy it's just sort of what that liturgy looks like so I was very much familiar with the church of the Nazarene's liturgy and <clears throat> so uh, like I was very comfortable with that but looking at these more like high church practices um, I just started asking more like, well, why do they do this? Why do they do this? Uh, what is this part like for Orthodox and Catholic? And I'm not sure how many other Protestant traditions do this, um, but why is it that at every church service that they have, there's always communion? Like, why is that something that is, it's almost like if you don't have communion at those services and it's like, like you didn't even have church. Um, so I started looking more into that and which led into uh, the theology of the Eucharist and uh, looking more into that. And there was a lot of other things that happened along the way. Uh, so things like um, looking up the development of the biblical canon and uh, sort of uh, various historical events throughout uh, the life of the church um, that all uh, ended up pointing me to Catholicism. And that's eventually where I well, obviously ended up. Uh, but at first I was leaning more towards orthodoxy because I didn't like Catholicism uh, because I just didn't like the idea of a Pope. And so I just thought, eh, I just don't want to do that. Um, but uh, uh, but eventually that is where I ended up because there were some questions I had that seemed uh, to really only resolve uh, within Catholicism. And I know I'm, I'm distilling a lot of things uh, and <laughs> I apologize if, if it does, seems like I'm being a little incoherent with that, uh, but just, yeah, so it started off with just wondering what is the purpose of the worship service, which led into other questions, uh, which eventually did begin my transition to uh, Catholicism. Because eventually what happened was um, there was, well, I guess I'll, I'll add on this. There were two major tipping points for me. One of them was the uh, the nature of communion and what... Uh, the the early church definitely believed Christ's teachings to be on that, that they were very adamant about what that meant and what that was. And I, I realized that that's not what was held by 
uh, the Church of the Nazarene, and I couldn't resolve that outside of saying, like, I, I just don't know if I can believe what the Church of the Nazarene teaches on that. Um, so that was one tipping point for me where I realized, well, I can't really be <laughs> uh, Nazarene much longer if that's the case, because I don't want to, you know, scandalize people and believe one thing, but still be Nazarene, even though I, I hold beliefs that are contrary to it. Um, and the other one was one I mentioned earlier, which was the nature of the biblical canon. So I had led a small group for young adults for a while. And one day they asked me, hey, can we talk about these uh, other books that are called like the Apocrypha? And so I did some research on that uh, in my research on that, because I had some background like my uh, uh, I have a bachelor's in biblical studies. So I did a lot of, you know, studying of church history and the development of the biblical canon and all of that. But there are some things that as I really looked into it more, I realized um, either I wasn't taught this or I just wasn't paying attention, which either of those could be the case, really. And that was one where I couldn't resolve it of uh, the 66 book canon. Um, and that was that was the last tipping point. That one was the straw that broke the camel's back for me is um, not being able to reconcile the 66 book canon with uh, what the history of the church testifies to. And that's when I ultimately realized, like, yeah, I, I'm going to have to convert because these don't I can't remain Nazarene and hold these beliefs. So so those were like the the major points, I guess I would put it that way. You know, that's but that's interesting that those are your tipping tipping points. Mm -hmm. um, I want I, I want to talk about that in a second, but I want to go yeah. back to what you're talking about with this idea of worship mm -hmm. and because, you know, I came out of the Catholic Church, but I th I, a lot of people don't know as part of my story is that um, I, when I became uh, a Christian, I actually worshiped in the Catholic Church for four and a half years before I came into the evangelical church. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, high, high church for me, like that's all I, I really knew. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who, because they they don't understand the significance um, of the symbolism in what's happening in high church, that they miss the um, the magnitude and the mystery of God. Hmm. Um, and, and I have said to myself, especially these last three years, as we've gone through the pandemic of what the heck are we even doing on Sunday morning? <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, like, what is this? Um, and I, and I think because all the energy and all of the effort that I put into Sunday morning and, and then of course, relying on the presence of, of the Holy Spirit, um, obviously, but it can't undo all of those hours that they spend ingesting the rest of the world. Mm. Um, and so there's gotta be something missing, uh, and so I, I guess I'm saying that because I want to then I want to take that and and then lead into the sacraments because th I think this was the hardest part of of the, the issue of communion for me was the hardest part of transitioning from Catholicism Catholicism to evangelicalism hmm. because even in your high churches like Lutheran and um, and really even the Methodist Church. Um, there's like an in-between between what Catholics, what Catholics believe about the sacraments, especially specifically communion and what evangelicals believe. Like when I go back and I read, so 
for, for those who are not Nazarene who are going to listen to this, um, you know, we have our roots in the Anglican Church. And I don't think Wesley would agree with where we stand on Catholicism. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't... I'm sorry, communion. I don't think Wesley would agree with where we stand on, well, definitely Catholicism, or but also communion. I don't mm. think he would agree with where we stand as Nazarenes on the sacrament of communion. Mm. Yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I think we've, I think we've taken it so low because mm. I did listen to your, your episode on worship. Oh. Um, and Thank you. <laughs> the point that there are so many, there are so many evangelicals who are like, well, I guess if we have to have it four times a year, we're like, yeah. <laughs> and we're like, so maybe we really don't think it's that important. Hmm. Um, and of course, I know the lame excuse is, well, we don't want it to become uh, so commonplace um, that we don't think it's important. But of course, nobody says that about reading their Bible. Right. So. That's, that's a good point. Yeah, and no one says that about saying I love you to their spouse every day. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm sure I'm pretty sure my husband, if I if I uh you know, he would never say to me, like, you don't have to tell me every single day that you love me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would feel kind of weird if my wife said that to me. <laughs> I would think something's wrong. <laughs> so because of that, will you because I really liked now I Okay, so take a second, and especially since your RCIA is fresher than my catechism, <laughs> um, will you just talk about the difference between transubstantiation, which is what Catholics believe about the sacrament of communion, mm -hmm. and then whatever we want to call what we believe? <laughs> sure. And just talk about why that, why that, yeah, why that drew you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and. Um... So just for clarity, in case of anyone listening, like I am not, um, I know in some of my earlier videos on my channel, especially my journey videos, and I actually made a video addressing this, um, I can come across a bit uh, frustrated and agitated in those videos. And I, I recognize now uh, some people have taken that to mean that I'm like anti-Protestant or I just like am totally against the Church of Nazarene. Um, but just for clarity, say like that's not true. Um, I recognize everyone's at a different place on their journey. Everyone's at a different place in their understanding. So uh, I hope nothing I say comes across as being judgmental or anti-Protestant. Um, like I do have my own opinions on that and my own uh, beliefs, but I just don't want to seem like I'm uh, uh, talking down or anything because that's certainly not my intent. Um, but yeah, so... There's definitely plenty of evangelicals who are... <laughs> There's yeah, definitely plenty of evangelicals who are anti-Catholic, so... <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> um, yeah. So, right. So in the Church of Nazarene, um, I mean, as, as you well know, uh, there is, you know, a pretty wide variety of opinion, though I think generally it is uh, believed that Christ is present in some way in the sacrament of communion, uh, but certainly not in the same way that Catholics would understand. So, like, when I was a Nazarene pastor, I had no issue talking about how Christ is 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 really present in the sacrament but that was more of like a, a spiritual sense such that you know when we participate we are inviting Christ to come into our lives in a more intimate way and I think that's totally appropriate especially for Wesleyan theology and for Nazarene theology um, I think that's how a lot of people tend to articulate it is something along those lines though they might differ in some of the terminology 
Um, but it's certainly not uh, merely an act of uh, memory or uh, merely a symbol. There is a belief that there's something else taking place there, um, but uh, it's not fully fleshed out what all that means. And that's not a criticism. That's just um, that's just how it is in the Church of the Nazarene. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but that's just sort of you know what it is. Like, yes, Christ is present in the sacrament, um, and then how you want to define that is sort of up to you. So in the the Catholic Church, so transubstantiation um, really is a reference to uh, when during the, the Catholic Mass, uh, which is what their worship services are called, you have uh, the, the act of consecration that happens. So you have the the host which is uh, the bread or the wafers and you have the the chalice which is the wine um and those are just uh wafers and wine up until the point of consecration where the priest uh, does the prayer of consecration and at that point they become uh i want to make sure i get my terminology right uh, so because talking about um transubstantiation it's kind of like talking about the trinity when you, the more you talk about it, the more you're likely to slip into a false teaching <laughs> because there, there's, uh, it can be a little intricate, but, um, so at the, the point of consecration, the host and the chalice become the, the true body and blood of Christ. So this is where it gets into like Aristotelian meta Aristotelian metaphysics, where you still have what we call the accidents of the bread and wine. So if you were look at if you were to look at them under a microscope, they would still look like pieces of bread. They would still it would still look like wine uh, with some water mixed in. Um, it would still look that way. It tastes that way. It smells that way. Um, there's no um, uh, sensation of anything else that's going on. Um, however, so those are what we call the accidents. But the substance is what's changed. So it is. Uh, now the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ in the host, in every wafer, in every piece of the wafer, um, and also in the wine. So that's why when you go into a Catholic church, like there is a lot of reverence shown to the the host and to the chalice, um, not just during the mass and when people are receiving it. Uh, but even afterwards, like they will reserve the host in the tabernacle in the Catholic Church, because that is Jesus in there. Um, not that he is. Yeah, this is where when you start talking about too much, you get into error. So I don't want to say too much, because then I'm sure someone who's Catholic will absolutely correct me on it. And <laughs> I've had that happen before. Uh, so I want to be careful. But that's why you have that happen. Right. So they don't throw out the extra wafers. Um, they don't throw out the extra wine. The priest drinks the rest of it. Although I think there's a, also another way that they can um, deal with extra wine, but I, I don't know exactly what that is. But they don't throw it out uh, because like that is Jesus. And that's also where you have adoration chapels where you will have uh, what's called a monstrance, which um, is this very ornate um, uh, sort of holder for a large host. Uh, which is, you know, could be like this big, even smaller, though. Um, and you have sometimes a special space in the church reserved where that's placed and people go in just to be in the presence of Jesus 
uh, who is fully present in the host. So that's why you you see some of those. And so if you ever see like a, a procession that happens um, among Catholics, like they will have at the front of the procession uh, a priest uh, or a bishop or someone holding the monstrance that has the host in it, and that is uh, Jesus. So that's where you get the major difference between Catholics and the Church of Nazarene. Um, because Church of Nazarene would not say uh, that, yes, the elements that we use for communion have become the substance of Jesus's body, blood, soul, and divinity. Um, they wouldn't say that. They would say maybe participating in communion is a way of, is a unique way that Christ interacts with us. Um, but they would have no problem um, like throwing out the extra wafers or, you know, just pouring the extra uh, juice down the drain because they don't um, hold to that belief that there is a transubstantiation that's happened. So I think th that would be like the major difference for sure, uh, which is also why at the mass, like if you don't have communion, then it's like, well, what are we there for? <laughs> um, because the communion is where uh, like Christ truly shows up in a physical way. Um, and we participate in eating his body and blood. So I guess that's how I'd summarize that. Yeah. And if they don't, yeah, if they don't have communion, they don't even call it mass. Yeah. It's like, well, what is that? I guess it was just a yeah. gathering. <laughs> right. I don't, yeah. I don't know. I think that, I don't know, maybe it's just a, a yeah, prayer gathering or whatever. And there is a, what, what's interesting is that for a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of Protestants don't realize this, that the Catholic mass, um, everything is leading up to the sacrament of communion. Like mm -hmm. everything points to that. Um, and it's taking you like, that's the pinnacle of the worship gathering. Whereas of course in the Protestant, it's the sermon. Um, and I can't help, but there's a part of me that is just like, maybe the, maybe the fact that we make the sermon the pinnacle of the Protestant church is why we have such an issue with celebrity preachers. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. There's not, there's not a whole lot of celebrity priests out there, uh, you know, other than the Pope, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, not, not too many. Um, yeah. Not that I can think. I mean, there's some who like give good talks, but I don't know of, uh, apart from like maybe Bishop Barron, um, I mean, there's not that many who are, you could say, are celebrities. No. But I guess Richard Rohr. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. Richard Rohr. <laughs> but yeah, having the sermon as like the center point, Which, that's, a, that's a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. Because if you mess it up, it's like, oh, why did people come to church today? <laughs> and you better have 52 originals. Yes. That, with, that are tweetable. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so since you've uh, converted to Catholicism, and you've officially converted, because I think you you were you were received uh, into the Catholic Church officially um, mm. not too long ago, right? Yeah, I was confirmed yeah. uh, I, during the Easter vigil, so the Saturday before Easter. Um, and you and they don't rebaptize. Correct. Yeah, I mean they had to validate. Uh, my baptism so like, i had to submit yeah. uh, some information to them so that they made sure like okay was it a valid baptism yes there was someone in my group who had uh, what's called a conditional baptism 
because she came from a church where she didn't have any record of it and it happened a while ago and it was kind of a really weird situation and so they weren't sure and so um the the priest or, or the deacon said um well we'll baptize you just in case that one uh was invalid so she had a conditional baptism i love that that's great uh okay so can we talk about spiritual practices sure in the protestant church especially the evangelical church we tend to be very heavy on daily reading of scripture and personal prayer that that seems to be like the heavy ones like you can get away with not doing any other spiritual disciplines but if you don't do those you know there's a possibility you're going to hell but when you talk about how how are your spiritual disciplines different now that you um are Catholic? How are they the same? Um, what what do you what are the spiritual disciplines that you find that you really thrive? Um, that your spirit thrives in? Yeah. Um it was very overwhelming at first. <laughs> um, because you're right, like I was used to okay, like daily prayer, uh, daily Bible reading, um, participating in, you know, my church community or participating with my church community. Uh, but yeah, when I was entering the Catholic church, uh, it was, it was very overwhelming <laughs> very quickly because there's a lot that goes on. Um, so yeah, so I guess the easier part of that question is, oh, what way are they the same? Um, daily Bible reading is still very much something that, um, I carry with me and it's, you know, something that a lot of people say you should do. Um, even in the Catholic church, I know it's sort of a, a meme that, well, Catholics don't read the Bible though. If you go to an Easter vigil, they'll read the whole thing that night. It's a, uh, it's, it could be, it's, there's a lot of readings. Right. Um, <laughs> but so yeah, daily Bible reading, um, and there's a lot more to read too. So I've been trying to catch up on, you know, reading the Deuterocanon, uh, as well. Um, so yeah, daily Bible reading, um, daily prayers, um, personal prayers, but also, uh, you have a lot of uh, what's called like devotions. So some people have, I mean, the, geez, there's so many. I've barely scratched the surface myself, but a very common one is the rosary. So people will pray that every day. And for those who aren't familiar, the rosary is a series of prayers that um, are intended to help um, cultivate a space for us to reflect on sacred mysteries. So you have uh, four sets of mysteries. You have the joyful mysteries, the sorrowful mysteries, the glorious mysteries, and the luminous mysteries. And uh, what each of those are, are uh, each um, set of mysteries, like the, the joyful mysteries, for example, is a set of five separate events um, from uh, the life of Christ. So uh, the joyful mysteries, for example, are the mystery of the Annunciation where Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her that she's going to conceive the Messiah. Um, then you have the visitation, which is where Mary visits Elizabeth uh, and stays there for three months. You have the nativity where Christ is born. You have the presentation of the temple, which happens it's eight days after Jesus was born and they present him to the temple and you have the prophecy that's um, said over him. And 
you also have the uh, the finding in the temple where Jesus is still a boy and uh, Mary and Joseph, you know, they leave Nazareth and then they realize Jesus isn't with them. So they have to go back and find him. So you have, um, yeah, five minute mysteries for each one. And so you you rotate through those and, you know, you sort of reflect on those. Like, well, what do these things mean? Um, what do these things teach me about who Jesus is? What do these things teach me about the church? What do they teach me about who I'm supposed to be? And uh, so that's one that I do. Uh, that's a daily practice for me. I'll pray the rosary, um, which is, uh, you know, five mysteries for each day. Some people do like the full rosary, which is all 15 or all 20 mysteries, depending on what format you do. I, I can only do five. Uh, I have a toddler at home. I have a lot going on. I can only do five a day. Um, so I, I incorporate that into my practice. And that's been very helpful for me too, um, just to get in that discipline of doing it and um, just through that process of reflecting on those intentionally, um, you know, multiple times a week uh, has helped me better understand, obviously, those particular portions of the life of Christ. Um, but uh, just also, you know, knowing that I'm participating in an act that a lot of other people are participating in as well privately. And, you know, just getting into that discipline of prayer, even sometimes uh, it can feel like just you know, you're doing it just out of habit and you know what's really going on here. But I feel like, uh, you know, even when I was in the Church of Nazarene, I, I very much emphasized, you know, at least in my ministry, like sometimes, yeah, you're not going to feel like there's a lot happening, but it's important to just cultivate that discipline. So that that's one way in which uh, my uh, daily spiritual practices have changed. Another one is uh, examining like the life of the saints and how they lived out what it meant to be Christ mm. in the world. So uh, I read a book recently. It, it's St. Therese's diary. Well, it's not really a diary. It was a series of letters she wrote, but it's called uh, The Story of a Soul. I don't know if you've ever read that or if you're familiar with it, but um, she was a Carmelite nun in the, the mid-19th century. And just her reflections on, you know, how she lived, uh, as Christ was just, it, it blew me, it blew me away. Um, just how she incorporated things so simply. Um, she called her process uh, the little way. And uh, it was basically, she would take on, uh, I don't even know how to say it, but she just tried to take on so much the character of Christ in every situation she was in. And she articulates very well um, what that looks like for her. So when she would find herself in situations that were difficult or unpleasant or uneasy, um, she would just make those opportunities of just, you know what, this is just going to be a sacrifice that I'm making and I'm not going to complain about it. I'm not even going to give any indication that I'm uncomfortable here. I'm just going to offer this up and, you know, God can do with it what he wants to and how she saw uh, opportunities almost at every moment of every day to make little sacrifices um, or to, uh, go the extra mile uh, for other people. And certainly you have those examples too, like outside of Catholicism. I'm not saying this is exclusive, um, but it is very compelling to see uh, these stories of of people whose uh, lives are just so radically <laughs> uh, different, uh, partly from their upbringing, which was very different from mine. Obviously, St. Therese was born and raised Catholic and I was not. But, um, but just seeing their lives is just very interesting and interacting with that um, perspective of spirituality and Christian living. That is something that I wasn't familiar with growing up Nazarene. 
just how, you know, those perspectives changed. So, you know, interacting with those, yeah, just the example of the lives of the saints. And uh, yeah, because ultimately the thing that compels me um, being Catholic is actually the same thing that compelled me when I was a Nazarene, which is holiness and being made uh, more like Christ and mm. cooperating with the Holy Spirit in my life. Um, uh, in, in a lot of ways, I, <laughs> um, some people might take this as a, as a slant and I don't mean it that way, but in a lot of ways, I feel like Catholicism was the fulfillment of what the church of Nazarene set me up for. So in that way, like, I don't see a conflict between my background as a Nazarene and becoming Catholic in terms of my relationship with Christ. Um, if anything, I just sort of see, uh, almost a, a realization of where the church of Nazarene was pointing me, uh, which is yes, live like Christ, be like Christ, be sanctified. Um, and then uh, with Catholicism, I sort of gain, you know, the lives of the saints where, you know, these are all these examples of what holy living looks like. And so I find that very compelling uh, to sort of see that and see like these, yeah, these are just ordinary people. Um, but they uh, allowed God to use them in incredibly extraordinary ways. And most of the time in very private ways, like a lot of the people who, um, you know, you read about that are saints, like they were not very well known at the time. Most people just didn't know who they were. Like St. Therese, she was a cloistered nun. Like No one really outside the convent even knew who she was. And the people in the convent even commented, uh, I think even after she passed, like, yeah, she was nice. Didn't really know her that well, but yeah, she was nice. Uh, but then, of course, after the fact, we began to realize, like, wow, like she really, there was uh, incredibly something, there was something incredibly holy about her. So I think I went off the rails a little bit. Yeah. I think I strayed from your question. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I think that there's, um, there's a uniqueness in the Catholic Church about looking um, at the saints and especially the mystics um, and and how they live their lives. But also that I think a lot of the Protestant church misses is like how radical they were in starting new things and new mm -hmm. works and how like women just did, were expected to do those kind of things. You know, like we've got all these, you know, women in the, um, you know, women mystics uh, starting their own orders and stuff like that and orphanages and schools and stuff. Um, and it, that was just what you did. Mm -hmm. And, and so, and I think now, you know, in our tradition, maybe because we've divorced ourselves so much from our Catholic roots, right. Mm -hmm. um, as Protestants that we, especially women, we find it so difficult, um, you know, to serve God in the church, you know, serve the church. Um, mm -hmm. And we're constantly having to, you know, defend our call and those kind of things. And you have people like St. St. Therese and um, uh, St. Teresa of Avail Avela, uh, who, and mother Teresa, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> who just went off and did their thing. They started, they started orders and did their thing. And they're like, mm -hmm. like, I ain't got time to worry about whether or not you want, <laughs> you think I should be allowed to do this. There are people who need to be ministered to. And so that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, and how much I think we can learn from, like there was a certain amount where they, they did not care about red tape. Like they're just going to do it, which really is like, oh, that's what holiness is, right? We're just going to do what God has called us to do. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm curious, 
when you started RCIA, mm-hmm. what what do you what was the thing that maybe surprised you the most about Catholicism? Hmm. And that surprised me the most. I mean, on the surface of it, I was surprised how many big families there are at my parish. <laughs> like they have like seven, eight, ten kids. I mean, there are kids all over the place. My goodness. They're just producing like rats. Well, I was at my dad's one of eleven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was one. The other one was uh just how I don't know, because yeah, like uh, sort of what I had mentioned earlier, you know, I grew up so growing up in Nazarene, you sort of hear a lot of stereotypes about Catholics. And one of the things that surprised me was how in a lot of the homilies that our priest gave, who's a fantastic priest, um, but I've also listened to other, you know, homilies, you know, and I've gone to other churches to visit, how uh, a lot of those homilies they could have been said in the, the church of Nazarene and no one would even know. I mean, unless there was like an overt mention to maybe one of the deuterocanonical books or, you know, a mention of, Oh, well, Pope so-and-so mentioned this or a particular Catholic doctrine, um, like explicitly mentioned. Yeah. A lot of it is, it's not like some totally new way of thinking, especially from a Nazarene perspective. Cause one of the things I used to say, uh, cause it's one of the things I was told, uh, which I do believe is true. Um, the Church of Nazarene is not that far off from Catholicism in a lot of its theology, especially its theology of sanctification. Um, it's very, very close. And so, uh, like, hearing uh, a lot of the homilies, um, like, it was not surprising to me. And I've had some people who visited uh, my parish with me, and they've even walked away saying, like, wow, like, that wasn't anything like what I expected. Says I could have heard that at my church. <laughs> so, so that one did surprise me. Yeah, it surprised me in sort of a mundane way. <laughs> I guess I expected more um, explicitly Catholic things and more overtly not Protestant things, just because I wasn't sure what to you know be familiar with. But yeah, um, which was a good thing, you know, because it means I was you know it's not like I was raised wrong, <laughs> or um, it's right. not that Catholicism is so far out there that it's it's like a totally different religion. Because, I mean, they they still recognize the same books that Protestants recognize. So they would recognize, you know, seven more. But, you know, they preach from majority the same passages that Protestants would preach from. And they believe a lot of the same things like the doctrine of the Trinity, um, the, you know, the divinity of Christ, uh, the virgin birth. I mean, you know, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. I mean, I've heard those said at Nazarene churches. So, Well, we do, yeah. Yeah. On all the high holy days um, at my former church. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we say um, the creeds. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the things that surprised me in the other direction. So because I came out of the Catholic church and mm-hmm. and I remember showing up at the Nazarene church and they would talk about being pro-life. And I'm like, oh, you think you're pro-life? That's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> and I would be like. Nobody does pro-life like uh, the Catholic Church. Um, hmm. You better you better get busy because <laughs> you're not <laughs> actually pro-life. <laughs> um, I won't say anything on that. I think that's um, an inside joke probably for you and I. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it is. I mean, it, so there was a book written by someone. Uh, it's called Surprised by... I don't know if it was Surprised... 
surprised by life, I think. Where like he mentioned that, like a lot of people are really surprised how actively pro-life the Catholic Church is. Um, because it's of course nowadays a lot of people know it, and that's why a lot of people like after the uh the Dobbs decision came out, um, a lot of people were really mad at Catholics over that one. Because, <laughs> because yeah, because they're they're pretty big pro-life groups. But all life. Yeah. You know, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, those on death row, those uh, um, who have already been born, uh, the elderly, disabled, you, disabled. Yeah. Uh, look, I'm I'm Gen X. I'm still slowly trying to change all my wording. <laughs> I'll, I'll okay. get there eventually. Yeah. Well, by the time you get there, they'll have to change it again. Um, <laughs> right. I know. I know. Okay. So for people who are listening, who are maybe exploring other ways of experiencing faith and spirituality, uh, I guess just advice or a suggestion on how they might explore something new. Yeah. Um, I would say one thing that can be very helpful is looking more at religious art, um, which might sound kind of weird, but um, even things like icons, for example, so which I know some people are very much against, but uh, that is one thing that I found very drawing to me in the the spiritual expression of the Catholic Church was how much religious art there is. Like even if you just walk into a Catholic church, mm-hmm. like you know it's Catholic because there's art everywhere. <laughs> you have uh, you know a large uh, crucifix. You have uh, paintings or other images of the various stations of the cross. You might have images of various saints, um, and these are all intended to. Uh, communicate things to us. And I understand some people are so put off by it uh, that they think that these are idols that are placed. You know, like they might see different statues like, oh, these are idols. So these people are worshiping idols. It's like, well, no, these aren't like, we don't worship them. Um, But they, they remind us uh, partly of who we are. I mean, because the statues you see are people from the history of the church. Like there are prominent figures, like you would have, you know, statues at the Capitol building um, just to remind you of, you know, what our history is, but also like um, religious art can depict like certain scenes from scripture that sometimes can be very helpful in reflecting. So like I have uh, next to my bed, I have several uh, images. Uh, So I mentioned, I pray the rosary. So I have, a an image of each mystery of the rosary so as i'm praying the rosary i'm like looking at these images and just sort of it sort of helps me process more and process better like well what's going on here um so kind of taking advantage of that and even like just the crucifix um i mean there's a lot that could be said about that of just a lot of significance that can be found there but Uh, these various art pieces that can make present a lot of the aspects of faith that we tend to only just think about or read about, but we don't really, it's hard for us to see and seeing things and visualizing them can certainly have uh, a different impact or can even be more impactful. Um, So for example, uh, I think uh, I was talking with someone one time and they were very, much upset at any sort of depiction of of uh, a crucifix so jesus on the cross 
Like they were just so uncomfortable with that. And I remember thinking like, well, I think that's partly the point. <laughs> it's supposed to be uncomfortable because it's supposed to remind us of the weight of our sin um, and what the price for our sin is. Uh, sometimes looking at an empty cross, it just doesn't do that. <laughs> so you see a, a Christ who is being crucified. That's a pretty nasty thing, but there's a certain reason for that. Um, and of course, there's a lot more going on there too. But um, yeah, so I would say, uh, you know, integrating religious art is, I think, can be a very helpful thing. At the very least, it's a, it's a good reminder for us, right? So uh, a while back, I was working as a window cleaner for a company out in West Michigan. And one of our clients was the Bishop of Grand Rapids, uh, the Catholic Bishop. And so we, I was cleaning the inside of his house and he had artwork all over the place. And it was a bit frustrating for me uh, in the sense that I constantly felt like God's presence. And that was frustrating for me because um, it, it made me a little bit OCD in all the work that I did. Because I was like, no, I need to do this well because I know that God is present here. Like not just in this house, like I know he's with me all the time. But I'm just constantly reminded that he's here. And so I don't want to do something just halfway. I don't want to give just a half effort. Like I want to make sure that I, I work well. And uh, I've obviously never forgotten that. It's always stuck with me. Um, and the thing that triggered it was I was in a house that just, you know, he had scenes of uh, Jesus walking on water. He had scenes of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. He had, you know, various uh, images of uh, you know, various saints throughout the, the house. So it was always these reminders, sub, sort of subconscious reminders of uh, the greater reality that goes on around us all the time, that there is, you know, a supernatural element to our lives and uh, that Christ is constantly drawing us towards him, not just when we read the Bible, not just when we pray, uh, even not just when we're conscious of it, but all the time he's drawing us. And so I find that to be a very helpful uh, way to facilitate that awareness of that and sort of cultivate that in my own life of trying to always be aware that God is working. And so, yeah. So that's why I find a religious art to be very helpful. Uh, first of all, what a great suggestion. <clears throat> my first thought was the Detroit Institute of Arts. And oh, no. I mean, you, you have, there's a huge wing of all kinds of Catholic art. I mean, and that's one of my favorite things to do is go and to sit and to look at the different paintings and um, and what the artists were, you know, trying to um, communicate, you know, about their faith and uh, and living out their faith, right, mm -hmm. in in real time. Um, and what's interesting, of course, as you walk through, right, and you see it, um, the the paintings move from you know middle ages early renaissance and then on you get into impressionists and stuff like that and, and it really kind of moves away from religious art um but i i find that really interesting right because you know protestants we come out of the reformation but the excuse me the reformation and the renaissance are happening at the same time but then i and I don't know, maybe it's the birth of modernity or what it is that happens where now we're like, no artists of the devil. Like, hmm. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so I, it'd be, it'd be interesting, I guess, the theological dive to figure out 
where where did we take this sharp left turn and all of a sudden instead of art being used to magnify god and glorify god now it's um no we don't want to have anything to do with art Hmm. yeah that is really interesting um yeah i'm not sure how connected those i mean i know they're connected but yeah, that would be interesting to sort of see, you know, where that divide happened and, and why. I don't know if it's because, yeah, I just don't know. Um, I don't know if it's a resource thing. Like, we just need to start churches and communities uh, as cheaply as we can and arch expensive, so we just want to do that. Um, I know that sounds really cynical, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I do know for some people... I guess I, I can only speak to like nowadays. So I know some people nowadays who don't like any of that because it looks too Catholic. <laughs> so that's why they don't do it. Um, but, <laughs> but I've met a lot of people who are, who feel the same way of like what, what you had experienced of like, they just like looking at it. Um, but for some reason, yeah, I'm not sure why it's not more incorporated into just the life of like the local church. Um, I know some churches have like maybe a couple pieces of art, like maybe they'll have a nice stained glass window that depicts a scene or uh, a painting that they hang up somewhere. Um, I'm not sure why it's uh, I'm not sure why it tends to be a little bit more art averse. Yeah, I don't know. Right. I wonder if it's uh, you made that you made a comment about resources. And I'm wondering if that is a certain amount, because I think about <clears throat> a lot of evangelical churches came out of these, you know, the tent meetings and stuff. And so really we were in, in, and in particular church of the Nazarene. I mean, we were in areas that um, were stricken with poverty. I mean, that's what, that's what our goal was to go in and to reach the people who didn't have the resources and minister to them. Well, I mean, if you're barely making ends meet, obviously to put food on the table, you don't have the time for art or to go to the Detroit, you know, the DIA yeah. for the weekend. Right. <laughs> um, although now it is free. If you live in Wayne, Oakland and Macomb County, in case you didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't so, know that. Yeah. So I wonder if that's, yeah, it is. So uh, any, anybody who's listening, if you live in Wayne, Oakland, or Macomb County, all you have to do is show your uh, state ID or driver's license and you get in for free. Hmm. Nice. So. Well, most Catholic churches are open most of the day and you can just pop in there and check it out if you want. Um, I've done that a few times. I've just been near one. I like, oh, I just want to go inside and look and I'll just walk in and they usually have some paintings or something in there if you want to check that out. But obviously it's a little different setting, but. Like there might be some people praying in there or something. Yeah, it is a little. <laughs> yeah, there may, there might be. It's a little different setting, but it is very um, it is very reverent um, atmosphere. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a treat center that I go to, and I've been to several times uh, in Southwest uh, Indiana, and <clears throat> it's actually run by three Catholic couples, and it. I will tell you, there is some, like, when you drive on the property to this place, there is a presence of peace and a presence of God that, like, it. if you, I have a new understanding of what it means to have a covenant with the land, like when I went there, um, because it is, um, like, just the presence of God is like a canopy over this place. And, um, 
and they and a lot of the stuff that they have done on that at that retreat center is to incorporate those things you know so they have um, a path where you can walk and then almost kind of like stations of the cross but not like each they have prayer different places throughout the the acreage where you can sit and they have a plaque with a scripture on it and you know um and so you can pray that and then of course there's a labyrinth um on the grounds and, and those kind of things um so a lot of a lot of different ways creative ways to experience god and experience the presence of god which i think we miss out on when we kind of like you were saying when we uh, pass up on um viewing art when we're afraid that oh no these are idols and those kind of things um so yeah and i can understand where that comes yeah. from so i don't like begrudge people when they bring that up because <clears throat> i get it um it was a bit shocking for me too at first just because i wasn't used to it uh like the churches i went in you know they had a cross they might have some pictures here and there uh, but they certainly didn't have statues <laughs> um not even really statues of Jesus. You might have one of those every now and then, but certainly no statues of like Mary or Joseph or uh, any number of these other figures that are wearing a, a Cossack or a <laughs> or some other sort of habit. Um, yeah, so it, it can certainly be intimidating at first. And I, I, I get it. Yeah, I understand it. Yeah. It's just different. No St. Francis with the... Yeah, no St. Francis with the birds and squirrels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very true. I, I I like yeah, every almost every Catholic church has one of those, but mm. um well, thank you so much for coming and sharing. Uh and and I hope that people will take some of these things and um embrace them and explore different ways of um faith and spirituality in their own lives. Yeah, thank you. I've enjoyed uh, being on and having this conversation. I feel so low. I'm not myself. I feel so low. I'm not myself.